the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. And riding shotgun, I'm Jordan McGillis. Joining us today to discuss the link between health and hydrocarbons is Chris Wright, the CEO of Liberty Oil Field Services. Chris is an industry veteran who earned his degree in mechanical engineering from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and conducted graduate work in electrical engineering at both the University of California, Berkeley and MIT. Chris, thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. You bet, guys. I'm glad to be here. Uh, before we dive into our discussion, um, I'm interested in learning a little bit more about your background. When did you develop an interest in energy and what made you pursue that interest uh, in school and then later on in your career? Well, sort of two things happened to me when I was young growing up that impacted my future direction. One was about 12 years old. In downtown Denver, I saw a homeless person for the first time. I was just shocked and frankly outraged that somebody in Denver in the you know late 70s could not have a roof over their head and enough food to eat. I didn't know anything about mental illness or substance abuse. I just saw poverty and it it outraged me. And so that's been a focus of mine all along, you know, how how, how are there still poor people and how do we fix that problem? And the other was when I was in high school, sort of the mania of the day then was depletionism. We were running out of everything, farmland, minerals, fertilizer, oil, gas, all sorts of energy, mass starvation in the U.S. was around the corner. Paul Ehrlich and Mark Holdren, you know, were certain 100 million people would starve to death in the United States by the year 2000. So that's only 20 years away. So this is a pretty frightening prospect. So eventually I linked together these two, wow, we still got a lot of people not out of poverty, and we're running out of energy, so we may go backwards instead of forwards. So energy is the problem. I want to work on solving the problem. Great. So uh, while I was preparing for this, uh, one of my colleagues pointed me in the direction of a speech that you gave back in December, uh, where you're discussing the link between access to energy and human flourishing. During that speech, you explained that the biggest threat to humanity and the environment is poverty. So obviously, um, these things that you were experiencing while you were growing up uh, made you pursue a career in energy. Uh, what did you mean, though, by the fact that poverty is the biggest threat to humanity and the environment? Yeah, um, I'll elaborate on that. You know, there's a lot of view. Environmentalism has become sort of a movement, almost a religion of its own. I'm a mountain climber, outdoor adventurer, so I've been a longtime board member of environmental groups. So, you know, 30 years ago, environmentalism about clean water and clean air and protecti- protecting species and wildlife habitat and sort of what you'd normally think of as environmental issues. Um, recently, this sort of depletionist mania that when I was a kid that everyone believed because everyone else believed, not because of data or evidence, but just everyone knew it, so therefore everyone else knew it, and it sort of grew from there. We had that same... Uh, issue today a little bit around climate change, which the kernel of it, of course, is real, but it's become such a such a mania that people think energy consumption or particularly carbon emitting energy consumption is somehow evil and bad, and that's a great threat to the environment and to poverty and humans, where, where, where in fact the, the opposite is the case. Poverty, our ancestors lived, what was the source of energy? Dominantly throughout all of human history, the main source of energy was wood. 
right? So when I travel in my passion in poverty to poor countries, what you see, first of all, is massive impact on the environment. All the trees, anything burnable is chopped down. People have to either migrate or walk miles to find, they collect dung, sticks, wood, uh, most the easy to you know access forests or generally will be gone from where you have a large population density. So the environmental impact of getting energy the way our ancestors did by chopping down trees is very big, very visible, and decades long lasting. So, and of course, when you burn wood, you have to burn it indoors to keep yourself warm and to heat food. Now you've got smoke and dust. We have four to five million people a year that die from indoor air pollution simply because they don't heat their homes the way you and I do. So to me, we want to attack the poverty problem, but in fact, by attacking the poverty problem and bringing modern energy sources, we make massive progress on the environmental problem as well. But although the you know history is writ clear with that data as the story, it is rarely appreciated these days. Chris, one of the veins here in the energy policy discussion that uh, you just prompted in my head is energy density. And you're alluding to that in, in that throughout history, we, we as human beings have had to consume uh, vast swaths of earth to produce energy. Uh, when we began to exploit hydrocarbons, however, we were able to get energy from much denser sources. Um, and that in turn enables us uh, to actually use less land. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, ab absolutely. You know, if you look at Google Maps or you look at photos from space, by far and away the most visible and dominant impact of humans on the planet is food production. Almost a third of the non-polar lands are used uh, for either growing crops or grazing and herding of animals. So we have a big impact producing food. You go in traditional societies, you've got that impact, and you've also got the deforestation impact, which is a very visible impact on land and, and stuff. You go to a city or, geez, when I, when I testified in the House of Lords in England uh, on shale revolution, nobody had ever seen an oil drilling rig when they visited the United States. They'd all seen windmills, but they hadn't seen an oil drilling rig. So what's great about hydrocarbons, as you talk about this energy density, which means we use somewhat uh, more than a thousand times less land to produce energy when we're getting it from underground than if we're getting it from the current flows of energy from the sun, whether that's from you know trees or biomass or wind, where your, your, your current flows of energy into the planet are just much more diffuse. Oil and gas, my view is they made the world more than 10,000 times bigger because we live today off just the top or, or historically off the top few feet of the soil from the wind, from the water, from what grows in the soil. That was the size of the resources we had access to. What's great about hydrocarbons is they're thousands of feet underground. And so, and humans don't live down there, but they, you know, they, they, they exist from say 2000 feet underground to 20,000 feet underground. So we have this giant volume of earth that has resources in where we don't live that we can extract from. And they're essentially the accumulated storage of hundreds of millions of years of solar energy into biologic matter that decomposes and then comes out in a nice, uh, easily energy dense, storable format that we can extract from down below. So now, you know, I, I, in that talk, I show the 
island of Hispanola. And you can see the western half of that island, the country of Haiti, is mostly deforested. Haiti's dominant source of energy is oil and gas, but it still has a lot of people living like our ancestors lived off traditional fuel sources, which means they're cutting down all the forests. You can see the border in the day because you, you've got these gorgeous and, and prevalent rainforests on the Dominican Republic. They get energy the way we do from deep underground. Mostly it's imported oil and gas, but that allows them to have the rainforest and nature still intact. I'm going to make sure to include that picture in in the notes to the episode because that was one of my favorite takeaways from your talk, actually. I I had never seen that comparison before. So you mentioned the shale revolution. I'd really love to hear uh, your inside perspective of how you've seen the industry develop um, over the past couple decades and the role that that has specifically played in the sort of progress that you're talking about. Yeah, so energy is a if, – if you're low income or, or poor or extremely poor, the cost of energy is a major impact on your quality of life because the energy is a major impact into food and the transport of food. So it impacts energy that you directly use. It impacts the cost of food. It impacts your ability to build or, or live in a, in a house or some kind of shelter. So energy costs matter particularly for lower income people. So in this sort of depletionist view, which of course has is, is been around a long time, but stirred up into a wild mania in the 60s and 70s, um, the view always is that energy will forever get more expensive and that we're, if we use depletable resources, they're going to run out, some kind of tragedy will persist and we have to find a change. But that's not the case for resources that are underground. The, 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 the resources are so enormous that the real inflation-adjusted cost of oil has actually been declining for over 100 years. But in short-term periods, it rises, right? So we had high oil prices in the late 70s. We had high oil prices in the, in the early 2000s. And it, it brings, again, this sort of mania that we're going to run out in 20 years and we've got an impending catastrophe coming. But why has the price of oil continued in inflation-adjusted terms to decline over the last century? Well, technology, human ingenuity. So the shale revolution is just the latest chapter of that. It just took, a, the, in fact, the largest source of underground oil and gas that are, that are locked into shale, nearly impermeable rocks, where they were first sealed when this microscopic matter died in the oceans and floated to the bottom of the ocean. If it got sealed in an impermeable rock, it got preserved for time, through, through time. And so what the shale revolution has done has led to a gigantic growth in oil production, dominantly in the U.S., U.S. has doubled our oil production just in the last decade. We've gone from importing 60% of our oil to now importing 10% of our oil, and very soon we'll be a net exporter. Natural gas, we already are a net exporter. But what happens when you get a bunch of new supply? It drives the price down. Oil was, you know, $90 a barrel averaged for five or seven years. Uh, the last few years, oil's averaged about $50 or a little bit less. That $40 difference in the price of oil, that changes lives. That changes people's ability to transport, to put their kids in school, to do other things. Low-income low people. It's the lowering in the price of oil and natural gas worldwide because of the shale revolution saves the consumers of the world somewhere around a trillion and a half dollars. So we get 7 billion people, that's $200 for every man, woman, and child. 
It takes money out of the pockets of energy producers and puts it in the pockets of consumers. And for low-income people, this is, this is raising people up. Today, as we talk, 130,000 people per day are lifted out of extreme poverty. Um, this is markets. This is a growth of free enterprise. This is lower cost energy. But when, when we do things that will raise the cost of energy or restrict the growth in the supply of energy, we put that at risk. You know, there's a humorous element to this conversation, and it's that just 10 years ago, there were all the concerns you're discussing about depletion, uh, about dependence on foreign oil, uh, because prices and you know prices were rising. There was an element. There was a, a a real scarcity concern. Now the playing field has been completely upended, and there's so much availability. There are so much. So there are so many proven reserves that we're now talking about uh, energy being taxed because it's too available. They want to raise the price uh, because we just have too much of it. Yeah, it, it is indeed a dramatic change. I, uh, I think it's important to understand because people because people generally don't because they're not energy nerds, right? Why why would everyone be an energy nerd? Well, they wouldn't. But uh, but I turned out as one, and so I, I say with confidence that a million years from now. And boy, I don't know anything about a million years from now, except for the fact that 90% or more of all the oil and gas that was underground a million years ago will still be underground. There is virtually zero chance of us coming remotely close to running out of oil and gas underground. I mean, it's, it's the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones, right? All right, we'll, cir- we'll circle back in a million years and check in with you. Yes, please, please do. I'm confident in that one. So certainly, so it's technology. It's just technology that dictates which of those resources we can tap and at what Precisely. cost. I do say that energy is the most important resource, except for human ingenuity, human resourcefulness. That's that's also you know sort of swims against the the fear of population growth, which by the way looks like population. Uh, world population will peak and start to decline in the next few decades. Declining populations, I think, are much bigger problems than growing populations, but that's a separate discussion. But when you increase the population density and you build cities and larger communities, you get this amazing fast pace of innovation that's had dramatically positive impacts. Just when the first oil and before the when the first oil and gas well was drilled, human life expectancy was 35 years globally. Today, it's 72 years, and when the first oil and gas well was drilled, um, 90% of the population lived in extreme poverty, meaning less than $2 a day. Today, it's 9% of the world population lives on less than $2,000 a day. So we went from a world with a much smaller population where 90% lived in extreme poverty, 10% didn't. Now we have 10% living in extreme poverty, falling fast, and 90% living uh, much longer, much healthier, much greater lives. Not because we have, and if we were running out of resources and more people was exacerbating that, we'd have the opposite trend. But it's because we have more humans, more human interaction, therefore more innovation, more technology, um, and ideas that continue to improve the human condition. Longer, healthier more rich, ro- more emotionally rich, robust lives than ever in human history. There's a common narrative in our culture that industrialization led to an increase in pollution and people living uh, dirty and um, soot-covered lives. 
do you want to talk about that narrative at all and what's valid about it, what's not valid about it? You bet. You bet. And, and the best place to, to talk about that probably is let's think of a city that's been around through that we got pretty good records on. And London is simply fantastic for that. Um, we have quite a, a reasonable understanding of the history of London. And Bjorn Lomborg, a statistics professor in Dan- Denmark, a guy who's dove into the environmental movement and has been focused on it for decades, by his estimate, um, the last time air in London was as clean as it is today was around 1580. And the reason London's air was getting dirty then, and in fact was dirtier than it is today, was transportation was horses, massive amount of horse manure. Wood was was you know, cutting down the forest in the countryside and bringing wood in. And if you go, you sit near a campfire, we like it, but you're always moving to get away from the smoke. If you're in a city where all of the power comes from wood, you have pretty low air quality. Now, coal came in, and it, 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 it allowed the population of London to grow faster, which meant more people, more innovation, more progress. But coal burns relative, not as b- dirty as wood, but, uh, but relatively dirty compared to oil and natural gas. So as the population grew massively and coal grew massively and manufacturing brought to the city, yeah, the air in London actually continued to decline and get worse. Um, it, it, the, the air quality in London was probably worse maybe 150 or so years ago. But for the last maybe century and a half, at least century, the, the air quality in London has been getting better, better, better. And that's the same in the United States. I grew up in Denver. We had the brown cloud when I was a kid. There were warnings on the news every day for air quality the next day. We have these gorgeous mountain ranges I'm looking at right now. Uh, probably a quarter of the days of the year, you couldn't even see them, even though they're 15 miles away. But, you know, just low quality. And, and that was from automobiles, L- poorly uh, older automobiles, imperfect combustion, create a lot of, a lot of smoke and particulate emissions. And then technology has continued to make air cleaner. Even though we drive more miles, our population has grown and we've gotten wealthier. In the U.S., I I mentioned since I was born, all five, and I'm about 50 years old, the six biggest listed particulate emissions in the Clean Air Act have collectively declined by over two-thirds from what they were as I was a kid. Where everyone thinks, oh, we're getting richer, we're doing more, we keep polluting the environment more and more. In rich countries, the environment's actually been getting cleaner for decades, and in London for a century. Now, if you look at, there is a, a, and I don't want to get into the economics of it, a Kuznets curve is the term, where if a country, you know, Mexico, or first starts to industrialize, its population grows, people grow in concentration, huge increase in energy consumption, they're going to use the cheapest energy source they can, which is a low-grade coal or maybe, and probably still a lot of wood burning. You do have a period of industrialization at the very start where air quality declines. Um, and, in, and in sort of today's terms, it's around $3,000 per capita income is around when you have the worst air quality. So in Burkina Faso, an incredibly poor country, they might have better air quality you know, than in Cambodia that's first industrializing. But once you get past that curve and you start to get wealthier and really enter the modern world, um, environments get cleaner and cleaner, water 
air, even our footprint on the land. U.S. farmland peaked in World War II. It declined, even though the U.S. population grew over 50%. We ate more, we export more food. But U.S. land used for food production declined very significantly from the end of World War II until 2006. In fact, the amount of land we used to produce food declined by more than all the urban and suburban land that people live on combined. The total amount of land we used in 2006 for, hum for population and wealth and everything in the United States was smaller than it was in our much poorer, less populous world in 1945. So, then we decided ethanol was a renewable fuel, and we started to reverse that trend. Yeah, the ethanol idea sure runs counter to uh, all the logical things that you're laying out here. So aside from the improvements in efficiency and uh, in agriculture and, and our wealth, can you get more into detail on the specifics of transportation pollution decline that has occurred in the last 40, 50 years here in the U.S., and what's enabled that? The technology and innovation, and also wealth, right? When people, when, when I travel to poor countries, if you're poor, you want enough food for your children to eat, you want shelter over you, and you want to make it through this season and into the next season. You don't think about environmental quality. There were no environmentalists 200 years ago. There was no mountain climbing or outdoor adventuring. But as societies get wealthier, um, now, all of a sudden, they once you take care of your basic needs, well, everyone wants clean air. Everyone wants a beautiful environment. Heck, my, but, but one of the sports I love, mountain climbing, there were no mountain climbers until there was oil and gas. But with oil and gas, now we can move. We can go away to the mountains, to the outdoors, to the wilderness. We care about the air we breathe. We care about the water. And now you can start significantly cleaning up your environment. But simply technology and efforts of innovation have driven these improvements for just cleaner combustion in cars, cleaner fuels that we produce. Heck, a, a modern car today, if you drive, a, you drive a Ford off the lot today and you're driving it down the highway at, at 55 miles an hour, it's emitting less pollutants than a Ford of the 1960s when it was parked and engine not even running. So this is this is technology and innovation. This is the stuff that humans do. It's clear that you have a really deep appreciation for the role that economic liberty has played in all of this progress. What led you to develop those insights? Um, I know there's a lot of business leaders who are interested in those ideas. They like to uh, apply those insights into their business. Um, given the name of uh, Liberty Oil Field Services. Do you want to comment at all on whether or not those uh, those ideas spill over into uh, the philosophy at Liberty there? Oh, I, I, absolutely. So going back, I grew up, I saw this homeless guy on the street. I heard about energy depletion. You know, these things became my passion. You know, I went to MIT to work on fusion energy because, boy, I knew, like everyone else, we were soon to run out of oil and gas. I worked on solar energy in graduate school and geothermal energy afterwards. So to me, I didn't care which energy source. We just needed abundant, cheap, high-quality energy sources for people. And so in my quest to understand poverty, I hitchhiked along the ghettos of the East Coast, spending time in the D.C. ghettos in Harlem, in the Bronx, in New York, Roxbury in Boston, and even to Montreal – to try to understand why are people poor? And then I traveled to the third world, to Africa, the, Southern Asia, the Caribbean, uh, to New Guinea twice. And what I learned 
was my view of original view of poverty was was very wrong. It wasn't just hey, there's some resources here and they're not there. We weren't sharing the pie correctly. I actually saw calorie deficient people in Africa that were happy um, and living full lives as opposed to the, you see more depression and more pessimism in our ghettos. And so what I realized was human authorship. If you're in charge of your life, you're much happier. You have fulfillment. You have earned success. Um, that, that's what brings humans happiness. So it's through my understanding of poverty that came that got me to become a passionate free market guy. It was not instinctual to me as a kid. And the other thing I learned in that was that, that I also had the question wrong. I wanted to know what caused poverty. Well, you know, what, what's this disease and how do we fix it? What I learned from travel and history was that that's the wrong question. Poverty, miserable poverty, is the lot of humans throughout all of human history, everywhere and through all time, until some places very recently. So the question isn't what causes poverty, it's what causes wealth, what causes longer life expectancies and greater health and richer lives and multi-generational families. Um, and what I found was the, the biggest driver of that by far is when we got away from top down, the chief, the king, the emperor that controlled everyone and you were their subjects, when we had freedom and organization and innovation from the bottom up, that's what enabled uh, the creation of the modern world. Two things created the modern world. The growth of human liberty and economic liberty really didn't get going until the early 1800s, and the arrival of oil and gas. They both came together in the mid-1800s, and as I said earlier, that's, that's what drove this over-doubling of global life expectancy, um, dramatic reduction in poverty, planes, trains, and automobiles, modern medicine. Hell, before modern times, I would never have seen my 14th birthday party. I'm a type 1 diabetic. That was a terminal. You were dead. The question was just how many weeks or months you had until you died, if you got that, throughout all of human history, till less than 100 years ago. We only I'm only alive today because of this growth of human liberty and the, and, and the prevalence of oil and gas. You need both of those to have a wealthy, modern, thriving society today. We may generate energy sources down the road that are dense and compact and storable. I sure hope we do. I'm still opt some optimistic on fusion energy. But today, the only dense, compact, small environmental footprint energy sources we have are oil and gas. So yay for liberty, yay for hydrocarbons. How do you conduct uh, your business in a way that reflects those values that you see? So our job, as all businesses' job, is to bring our customers something better than they can buy anywhere else in the marketplace. So we've done everything we can to make hydraulic fracturing better, greater recoveries in each wells, lower costs in each wells. We've developed quiet frack fleets. So 500 feet away, even though they have the power of a jet engine, of a 747 jet engine, you can't even hear them. We change the way sand is carried to get rid of the dust and the noise associated with sand transport and sand, and sand loading. So we have done everything we can, and we continue every day to develop technologies to figure out how to continue to shrink the impact um, on the neighborhood and on the planet from what we do in oil and gas production. That's been a great progress of the shale revolution, and, and I would say Liberty uh, has been leaders in that. We also do everything... We spend a lot of money and time in our communities and in our country to try to spread liberty and opportunity to people that were born in different zip codes than us. I'm the co-chairman of a, 
of a scholarship group here in Colorado called ACE. We have uh, Liberty, just Liberty, our company and our employees, uh, fund over 100 low-income kids on scholarships so they can get education and skills to have as free and rewarding lives as they can. We work with poverty abatement programs. We work with all of the ways that growth in human liberty and education um, can expand human lives. Of course, it makes it a great, a great, uh, a great place to work and, and to be successful in business. You got to have great people that like working there. But we want to spread liberty and available, abundant, low-cost energy to everyone we can. That's what drives and motivates the folks at Liberty. It's an incredibly refreshing perspective to hear somebody in business talk about uh, talk about their business that way. And I think it's a great note to end on. So, uh, Chris, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. And uh, thank you we so look much. forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks so much for your time, Alex and Jordan. I enjoyed it. Take care. <laughs>